Good morning. My name is uh, Dan. I'm a leader here at Grace Fellowship Church. And uh, before we get started, just uh, two quick things. First is you'll need a uh, Bible, pen, and an outline to fully participate. If you don't have any of those things, just get your hand up and uh, we'll get one to you. Secondly, we have a nursery. For those of you who are visiting here, it's right around the corner, down and to your right. If you could plow right through this wall, you'd be right in front of it. And uh, we have lots of really cool nursery workers and kids there. My daughter's there right now. She'd love to play with you. So if, uh, by all means, you can certainly keep your kids here. But if you'd rather utilize the nursery, great. We also have a nursing mother's room right there. Um, before I kind of move into the text today, I was thinking about Christmas, and I'd like you to, I'd like us to all just take a minute and reflect on a fine piece of Christmas art that I'm going to put up on the screen here. Let's just breathe it in for a minute. There you go. <laughs> what do you guys think of that one, huh? Mm-hmm. No, note, note the seasonal red, white, and green color scheme. Mm-hmm. I'd also like to point out the fact that Christ is capitalized here, so you're <laughs> sure that it's in Christmas. And then lastly, the life-changing call to action at the bottom. <laughs> you, can, you can get that off my screen now. <laughs> Here's the thing. As I look at that, should we keep Christ in Christmas? Should we? Like, is that wrong? No, it's not wrong. But is it a helpful way to get the word out there? Well, God can use it. God can use anything, but that wouldn't be... My, my first choice, because here's the thing. It provokes conversation, but it doesn't provoke meaningful conversation. And if you've ever seen one of those photos and you just click on it and it's shared like 177,000 times and there's like so many comments, I was looking through a few of those comments just for fun. <laughs> um, and there were uh, there were hundreds of comments that echoed what I what I just said. There were lots of amens and reason for the season, and there were a lot of like spelling errors, and there were like lots of people who just decided to use all capital letters because it's easier. And I'm sitting there and I'm thinking, and there's just these horrible back and forth exchanges. Like nobody's getting saved, and you know, and I'm just sitting here thinking, you guys are making us look so stupid. You ever think that? Like when you get one of those or you see a book come out and you're like, oh man, like my life's work is ruined. Like, you know, I'm working hard and then there's this person and there's like 10 more just like him and the weights just seem off. But here's the thing. Those people that made comments like that, they might actually really like Jesus. Like they might actually really like him. But here's here's my problem is I don't like to wade through the mess to find out. I look at the comments, and if they're not what I like, or if the person doesn't meet my immediate expectation of what a Christian looks like, or sounds like, or types like, I just kind of toss them off to the side. Because when I back up and look at the big picture, I realize something, and it's this. Jesus often chooses to work in and through people that I wouldn't expect, and I don't normally like that. And my guess is you probably don't either if you've ever encountered something like that. This week we're going to be taking a pause from our Ecclesiastes series and reading about a man who can probably relate to what I just said. His name was John the Baptist. He was Jesus' cousin and he was the proclaimer of his arrival as Messiah. 
But as we'll read this week, John's life and ministry, as they're drawn to a close, he's realizing something. Things are not going the way that he planned at all. He's in jail. So today I want to dig into the vanity of this situation John is in. And I want to see why there's hope for him no matter how baffling life gets. And I want to see that there's hope for us too. No matter how confusing God's will or who God uses seems to be in our lives. And the hope is this. Because Jesus is the Messiah, we shouldn't be offended by him or... We also shouldn't be offended by what he does or the portion he gives us or who he uses in our lives. Before I dig into the text, which is Luke chapter 7, verses 18 through 21. If you have a church Bible, it's on page 561. So Luke chapter 7, verse 18. Before we dig into that, I'm going to explain John's work up to this point. One of the main ways, like one of the main ways that John worked is that he prepared Jewish people for the coming of Jesus by baptizing them. But here's the thing. When he did that, he didn't do it in the nice way that you and I think of a baptism service. You know, when people clap and you give your testimony and you get flowers or cookies or a certificate afterwards. No, no, no. John didn't do that. Here's what John did. He baptized people, but he, he pretty much yelled at them while he was doing it, like before he did it and then after Here are a few of the uplifting things that John said to the Jewish crowds who came to him to be baptized. This is from chapter 3. You don't have to go there. John says this, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruit in keeping with repentance and do not begin to say to yourself, We have Abraham as our father. And here's the thing. Even after the baptism, John says something like this, I baptize you with water, But he who is mightier than I is coming, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand to clear the threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his barn, and he will burn the chaff with unquenchable fire. Can you picture the Jesus that John is announcing? Just picture that for a second. One word that comes to mind, I would say, is revolutionary. But not long after this, something pretty strange happened. John got thrown in prison. And he stayed there. And time passed. And he never got out. And Jesus' ministry grew while John just sat there. So with that in mind, I'd like to read the, uh, the first four verses and consider the present tension that we have, which is, is point one. John questions Jesus. So I'm going to read verses 18 through 21 of Luke chapter 7. The disciples of John reported all these things to him, and John, calling two of his disciples to him, sent them to the Lord, saying, Are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? And when the men had come to him, they said, John the Baptist has sent us to you, saying, Are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? And in that hour he healed many people of diseases and plagues and evil spirits, and on many who were blind he bestowed sight. 
Okay, we know who John expected Jesus to be. So now, as we read these verses, let's understand how Jesus is specifically different from that. So let's start by looking at the last verse that I read, verse 21. In that hour, and I'll add all throughout Jesus' ministry, he's healed many people of diseases and plagues and evil spirits, and on many who were blind, he bestowed sight. But consider John's words from chapter 3. Where's the winnowing fork? Where's the fire? I mean, the, a winnowing fork, by the way, that's what farmers use when they want to dig in there and they want to rip out the dead, useless stuff and get it, get it away and burn it. And then they keep the really good wheat. And that's the useful stuff. The idea is separating bad from good. But Jesus isn't doing that. He's not fitting that description so far at all. He's actually healing people. People that the Jews would not call good. People like diseased lepers. It was just in the previous chapter you can read about that. People like widows who need help and they can't even provide for themselves. Social outcasts and beggars. People that you would not choose. I'll use my imagination here. People that I do not think John would choose to start a revolution. Pretty unlikely folks. So do you see the tension? And so now that the problem has been clearly defined... Let's back up to that first verse and go into prison with John in verses 18 and 19. His disciples come and they explain what Jesus is doing. And we can assume that John must at least be a little confused because he tells his disciples to ask this question. Are you the one to come or should we look for another? So what it seems is happening is that John the official messenger of Jesus, the Messiah, isn't sure that Jesus is the Messiah. Wait a minute. Something's not right. A lot has been said about this verse because it doesn't seem to paint a very nice picture of John. I was reading commentaries and it was noted that actually early scholars were so embarrassed by even the thought of John asking such a question that their embarrassment affected their interpretation of the text. They said, no, no, that can't be. No, no, some of John's disciples were doubting. So they asked John and John sent them to ask Jesus. But look at the text. That falls apart. The text is clear. The disciples report the acts of Jesus Then John sends them. The report prompts the question. And when the disciples go to Jesus, they say, John has sent us saying, are you the one to come? So I think it's clear what's actually going on, but that doesn't make it seem any less embarrassing, does it? I mean, why does Luke include this? Well, let's consider that same mighty man, John, and how fired up he was in chapter 3. He's now powerless, a messenger who has been silenced. Charles Spurgeon looked on this portion of text and he said this, John the Baptist, after living in the wilderness, in the open air by the riverside, that's how he grew up, must have felt a strange difference when he was shut up in the close, oppressive dungeon of Herod. And the body may have helped to act upon the soul. And so the mind 
after its extraordinary tension in the great service to which John was called, after all the hard work that John was doing, he may have been dragged down by his half-stifled body till his faith began to tremble. And so it may be that John, for his own satisfaction, found it necessary to ask. So all, all Spurgeon is saying is this hard situation is crushing him and it's causing him to question Jesus because his reality got turned upside down. Now that's something I can relate to. How about you? You ever been embarrassed by being humbled in that way? I mean, anybody who grew up in a church was probably not shown this side of John. I don't know about you, but I got kind of the felt board version of all the people in the Bible. I don't knock on felt boards, they're cool. But usually what would happen in Sunday school is I would get this picture of these superhuman people who were amazing. People like John and people like Jonah, because they skipped over the end of the story. And people like the disciples who you just always heard about them doing all this cool stuff. But that's not what I'm seeing here. How about you when you read this? Are you embarrassed for John? I mean, could you imagine reading this text to an atheist and he just kind of reads it and he just kind of chuckles and throws the Bible back at you and he's like, that's the greatest man born of a woman? That's your guy? John's your best guy? Let me pause and say this. As hard as stories and situations like this seem, I think they're actually what make the Bible so reliable. I think they prove the Bible rather than disprove it. Here's why. Think about it. You wouldn't dare fake this testimony, write it down, and expect to go anywhere in the Roman Empire unless there was more happening. Unless it wasn't about John. The weaknesses of John are so clearly put on display. Both his wrong assumptions about who Jesus was and the simple fact that he can be shut down and locked away. He's a person. It's the ugly, embarrassing truth of how breakable people really are. That's offensive to human nature, isn't it? Here's why I say this. The problem is actually when we try to hide that weakness. When we pretend we're not easily broken, when we pretend we're on the same page with God, when in our minds we're going nuts. Because when we do that, when we fake it, it makes the inevitable harder to swallow and we end up choking on it. I mean, think of how many times you've been literally crushed by hard situations like the one John is in. John has worked hard his whole life. Yet he missed the main point, it would seem, and he seems to be wasting away in prison while, as Jeff put it last week, childish kings feast. And so John does what I would do, and what I think a lot of you guys would do if you were in the same situation. He doesn't question himself, he questions Jesus. And so in verse 21, his disciples then go to Jesus, and this is his reply. It's point two of your outline. Jesus clarifies Jesus. And he also, in doing that, will clarify John. <clears throat> Let me read verses 22 and 23. And he answered them, Go and tell John what you have seen and heard. The blind receive their sight, the lame walk, 
lepers are cleansed and the deaf hear, the dead are raised up, the poor have good news preached to them, and blessed is the one who is not offended by me. Jesus' response, which he's kind of famous for at this point, is not really clear. He doesn't just say yes or no, but if you read into it, he is saying yes. Here's why. He quotes the prophet Isaiah. And what he does is he goes back to all the promises that were in Isaiah and he lists all the work that he's doing right now and he's saying, that confirms it. I'm doing what Isaiah would say I would do. In other words, he's saying, my work proves I am who I say I am. He also makes a gigantic statement in verse 23, blessed is the one who's not offended to me, offended by me, but I first want to take a little time to explain what he's implicitly saying to John, because I think there's more happening than it seems. We're going to hit on some real big vanity here. I think it's actually what Jesus chooses to leave out from his quotation of Isaiah that's so striking. There's a really big promise, and it's all throughout Isaiah, and it's most clear in chapter 61 of it. And here's the, here's the promise from Isaiah. The captives will be freed. It's a big promise. First, I want to talk about why I think Jesus left that out, and then I want to talk about what I think that means for John. First, why did he leave that out? Well, he didn't forget, and he didn't think it wasn't important, because he actually just quoted it in chapter 4. When he was preaching in his hometown of Nazareth, he said, freedom for the captives. But when he quoted that, the people in Jesus' hometown made, I think, the same wrong assumptions that John had been making. See, right after Jesus told the crowds in chapter 4 that his arrival was for the freedom of the prisoners, they all smiled and they all clapped and they said, isn't this amazing? But then Jesus clarified something. He used, and I'll I'll be brief here, he used a historical example of God healing a foreign nation instead of Jews to prove a point. What he said to the people in chapter 4 was, I haven't come specifically to bless you. Jesus' chief purpose was not Jewish prosperity or even earthly prosperity. So the Jews got angry and tried to kill him. And that didn't work. So you can safely assume that they doubted Jesus was the Messiah, right? If you try to kill somebody, I think that's pretty clear evidence. In fact, they were downright offended by him. Now, here's why I think Jesus uses that specific quotation and he leaves out the part about the captives being freed. Because I don't think Jesus is just saying, yes, John, I'm the Messiah. I think what he's saying here is, yes, John, I'm the Messiah, and you're staying in prison. You don't get out. And, I mean, even if that's not true, he doesn't even speak to John's situation. He never says, hey, John, hang in there, buddy. He doesn't even talk about it. Imagine you're John. And the man who is your cousin, he's family, he's your co-laborer, you've been working with him. And the man you were expecting to be the great Messiah, the great rescuer, he sends you that message. 
The text doesn't say how John responded. Because this is the last we hear of John in the book of Luke. He doesn't even get a response. Just two chapters later, we read that he was killed by Herod. That's it. When I read that, my gut reaction was offense. John, that's your lot in life. Doesn't that seem depressing? And you know what? I think it would be, except there's a little bit more to Jesus' response that's really helpful, though it appears kind of harsh. We're going to go back to verse 23. Blessed is the one who is not offended by me. Here's why it seems harsh. I think it's pretty clear that Jesus is kind of implicitly asking John a question. John, are you offended by me? But here's why it's actually helpful. Jesus goes right for the heart, but I think he does it in a pretty kind way. He doesn't simply say, you're wrong, John. John, you messed up. John, that's why you're in prison. He doesn't say that. Here's what he says. He makes it all about him. Here I am, the fulfillment of Scripture. It will go well for you if you're not offended by that. So it's not harsh. It's actually incredibly humbling. And it's very humble considering the question John has asked Jesus. John says, are you the Messiah? He's doubting. Jesus chooses not to take offense. Instead, he does this. He offers John hope. And it's as simple as this. Accept me for who I really am. Now, I think here, Jesus is offering John a way out of a much deadlier prison than anything Rome could offer, right? And the way out isn't some little social revolution. The way out isn't a little bit of prosperity. Jesus had a much bigger plan in mind, and it was bigger than the Jews, and it was bigger than John, and it was bigger than Rome. And it was accomplished through the cross. In other words, Jesus' plan was far bigger and far better than anything John could have came up with. I mean, that's the gospel, right? Now consider that message today. Just think about that Jesus now, because he's the same now. I mean, even the very name of Jesus can be particularly offensive right around this time of year. It can be offensive, and here's why. Because we can't control how Jesus chooses to work. So for non-Christians... And Christians alike, the question is actually the same. Are you offended by Jesus? Because Jesus heals some sick people, but not others. I read stories and I'm just like, oh man, praise God. That guy on the news, miraculous, no cancer. But I have friends who have cancer. And they're not getting better. Jesus, who chooses some common people to do great things, but not others. You know, you read about that guy. He had the opportunity. He got a national platform and he preached the gospel and a bunch of people come to know the Lord or he starts some big ministry. And it's like, oh, I work at the mall. Jesus allows the wicked to prosper while the righteous die broke or in prison. John, John's working hard. John dies in prison while Herod feasts. See, that's how Jesus worked then, and he still does it now. What's your response to that? 
Here are, here are two um, examples or maybe kind of application questions to help you and see how offense toward Jesus might be in you. One is going to be a little bit more outwardly focused, like how you deal with other people, and one is inwardly focused. Here's your first application. It's a bit outward. It's kind of a question to ask for yourself. Are you offended by poor or uneducated or unfashionable Christians? Like, just imagine the caricature. When you think of like that Christian that you're like, oh, here he comes again. I don't know what that looks like for you. But think about maybe the trailer park guy who talks about Jesus and his grammar's horrible and he gets made fun of all over social media. Just think of it, think about that guy. Or maybe just kind of like the older church lady or the church guy and they're just totally out of touch. Like they're handing out black and white tracks. Like they don't even know color happened yet. Or the young person who's just fresh out of high school and they just seem so idealistic. And it's just like, you know, when you, when you see life, you'll change. Or just maybe, to be honest, maybe you're Christian parents. Like you're just kind of bothered by how they speak and talk and dress. Are you embarrassed by any of those people? Like I mentioned earlier, a big one for me is when people post or write things while praising Jesus and it's filled with typos and grammar and I just think, oh man, you're just setting us back so far. Why are we offended by that, by things like that? I think at least one reason is that we think because we're Christian, we should be rich or at least middle class, somewhere in there, or we should be really smart or we should be really trendy. We think that's what we should be as Christians. But here's why our offense is offensive to Jesus, because Jesus was a common man. He was from a small town. He was relatively poor. He was not a high-profile Pharisee. In fact, based on the region where he lived, he would have had the equivalent of some sort of a hick accent. That's probably how he talked. Like, when he would have spoke, rich people would have kind of been like, oh, here's that guy again. I mean, even the prophet Isaiah said this about Jesus. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. Jesus was not like the ripped guy with the long brown hair. and the, that's, not, that's not true. That's not at all what Jesus looked like. Jesus' beauty was on the heart level, and it flowed out of him in the form of selfless compassion. Now, let me clarify. You are free to go make a bunch of money and you are free to go read books and get smart and you are free to engage culture. But what I'm saying is that the goal of those things is to honor God and to make disciples and give God a good return instead of look down on people who didn't get the same lot you did. I mean, my goodness, I even think of my own life. I'll just pause here and throw this in. I know people in my life, they're just smarter than me. Like, that's it. Like, they're just capable of more stuff. It's not faith. It's like their brain works on such a different level than mine does. It was cool. I got other stuff that people were like, how'd you do that? I'm like, I don't know. This came out. But you have people in your life like that. They just operate differently. And I think the most striking thing about Jesus' ministry 
is that Jesus looked at those poor, needy people, the people that I tend to make fun of, and he stretched out his hands to help. And compared to Jesus, aren't we all kind of poor? And aren't we all kind of dumb? And aren't we all kind of unfashionable compared to the Lord Jesus? Do you see then how offensive our offense is? I mean, we often ask, God, why are you doing this? Why are you working through that guy? Why is that guy even posting on Facebook? When we should be asking, God, why are you so good to work in any of us? Yet, despite that offense, Jesus took our offense on himself, on the cross, which frees us to lay down our lives for people through hard situations that don't line up with our expectations. Because God's awesome. So how do we how do we apply this? I'll just throw one out there. I'm going to throw out some Christmas applications for you. One practical way you can apply this is through your giving. We have a Christmas fund set up, and it's designed to help foster kids go to things like summer camp. Kids who were discarded. Prison wasn't even good enough. Just wherever. And somebody took them in. You get a chance to help those families by giving. And here's the thing. Even if you give, you're probably never going to meet them. Well, not here anyway. Or get any sort of an in-person thank you. You might not know how the money got used. You might. You might not. But that's okay. God sees. You can give to people just like that because they're all around. Okay, second application that's a little bit more inwardly focused. And this is a question to ask yourself. Are you offended by the discomfort of holiness? Uh, the Bible calls becoming more like Christ killing the flesh. That doesn't sound very pleasant, does it? Well, it shouldn't. <laughs> that's why they call it killing the flesh. It should feel like death. And it feels like death because it's your flesh. And I think John... Wasting away in prison, to be honest, was a foreshadowing of Christ becoming more holy by dying on the cross. We're called to model Jesus, and that doesn't always mean that we're going to be martyrs. Like, we're not all going to, that's not what God has for everyone in here, probably. But what it does prove is that one of the greatest enemies of holiness is comfort, right? We're a culture of comfort, aren't we? And you know what's funny? I just realized, what's the biggest holiday of comfort if not Christmas? Do you see what we've done to it? <laughs> like it's like present. Like we just get presents and eat food that's just horrible for us. And, and we, um, we sleep in and we sit by the fire and we, we don't leave the house. And I mean, I think about that. And here are two ways that you can grow in holiness this winter. I mean, we can celebrate that stuff. I'm not saying any of that stuff is wrong, but here's how you can just fight the temptation to just kind of relax and do nothing. <clears throat> First way to grow in holiness. Fight the respectable sin of gluttony. Let's go there. I mean, this is a big time of year for weight gain, right? For falling asleep at 2 p.m. because you've eaten too much. 2 p.m. <laughs> it's still light out. <laughs> I'd like to confess an ugly family secret of mine. It goes all the way back to the Great Depression. My grandparents were so poor when they grew up 
that they could not afford to waste one ounce of food. They really couldn't. Like you ate it all or you starved. That was what they grew up with. My great-grandmother, after the children had left the table, would go around and finish everyone's plates and everyone's cups. Didn't matter if she's full. She'd just not waste a net. She'd just drink all of it. Everybody's orange juice. And um, I think what's really, what's really hard is there's a certain commendability about that, but it often led to health problems for people in my family because they just didn't want to waste food. Fast forward to the next generations of Millers. The financial situation has improved, but many of my relatives still do the same thing at dinner. It's just kind of a tradition. Is that going to get thrown out? I'll eat it. I've done that. Like I've, I've had days where I've eaten far more than my body can handle, and I've done it out of guilt. It was almost a form of penance when you think about it. I'm taking the, on the harmful effects of eating extra food to try and absolve myself of the guilt that I have so much. Which actually brings more guilt and health problems. I'm not solving the problem. The point here is, the call is fight to believe the gospel even as you're standing in line for food at the next Christmas party. That's a fight, guys. Another way to grow in holiness this winter is second and last one. Fight the urge to hibernate. I'm seeing Hulu ads. Hulu is basically streaming internet television. And um, and they're just nonstop. Like all the commercials, you've probably already seen them. They're just showing like big friends and couples and they're just piled up in the, they're like sitting on the couch and they're watching like a whole season of shows at once. Has anybody done that? I mean, I think college kids do that a lot now, actually. They just kind of go home and they're just like, I watched all of it. That was their Christmas. And the invitation is to just kind of binge. And I look at that and I'm like, they're telling us to be bears. Right? Hibernate. Don't do stuff. Now, and to be honest, though, like as I think about that, you kind of mock it. But really, who likes to shovel their walk and go out in that stuff? Wouldn't you rather just sit at home and just do whatever? So the temptation is to just kind of hole up, not advance the kingdom. Now, don't get me wrong. I don't want you like recklessly driving out in the blizzard with like a two-wheel, like a one-wheel drive car and just (laughs) killing yourself. Like, I don't want you to do that. That's not what I'm saying. Here's what I'm saying. Go to work and keep reaching out to your neighbors. Cook up an idea with your growth group. I like my growth group, even in January. Our growth group, some of the some of the people, we got together, and we were just like, let's do a party in January, because there's really not, not a whole lot happens then. So we're doing like an indoor winter kind of block party, so we're like going around handing out cookies. Come to this thing. It's like, Jan- you know, come to it, and people are kind of, oh, wow, that's really cool. You're doing that, and people are actually kind of excited about it. And the more excited they get, the more excited I get. Very little happens in January, but you can be a shining light even then. Even when it's like dark at 3 in the afternoon, you can go be a light. So if you're in a growth group, consider doing something like that. If you're not in a growth group, join a growth group and then do something like that. (laughs) 
I'll wrap up here. Here's the amazing thing about growing in holiness. When we grow in holiness, it's actually the opposite of being offended by Jesus. It's the exact opposite. Instead of shrinking away out of anger at what he's done, we rejoice in who he is and we step out in faith. And when we serve him, our eyes aren't fixed on whether or not we're comfortable with the people he's given us or the situations he's given us. Our eyes are instead fixed on Jesus. And so we can really live like he did. Not loving the world, but yet dying to redeem it by pointing people to their only hope, the Messiah. Let me pray for us.